Let's pray as we um, consider this passage of Scripture. Father, we come to you again. Uh, we think of the song we just sang, let, let us lift up our hearts to the Lord, and we, we confess even a weakness to do that. So we pray that your Spirit would, would do the heavy lifting there and would, would lift our hearts to you, that we would encounter you um, as we consider your Word in a powerful way that you would help us to um, understand your truth, but also that it would penetrate our hearts and souls in such a way that we leave different than when we arrived, that we would be transformed. That's what your word does. So we pray that you would do that this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to take this as an occasion, this death of Abraham. We've been looking at Abraham's life since the beginning of August, and now we've come to the end of it, to his death. We're going to take this opportunity to consider a very tough topic, a topic that we really try to avoid with everything in us, and that is the topic of death. And I think this avoidance of death may be especially bad or difficult for us. I mean, for many of us, we, we, we haven't killed anything, which in most cases, that's good. Um, you know, maybe a few bugs, but we're, we're so removed from death in our own age. A, a British contemporary artist named Damien Hirst has a, a piece called Pharmacy, and it's a, it's a literal, like, room, pharmacy. It looks just like a pharmacy. Everything is white clinical, sterile, shelves. With, on, on every shelf, there are prescription drugs, uh, little boxes of medicine on every shelf. There's a little uh, countertop. Um, there's stools, as you would find in the pharmacy, to reach the top shelf pharmaceutical drugs. And, but, but here's what's interesting in this little display, this, this piece of art. On each of the stools is a bowl of honey. And then you'll notice in one corner of the room is a, like a, a blue fly shocker light. And it, his, his purpose was to draw flies in with the honey and then the light to attract them. And so in the middle of this sterile, clinical, pharmacy environment, flies are just falling to their death. This is what he says about it. In a chemist shop, now he's, he's British, so he's calling the pharmacy a, a, a chemist shop. In, in, in a pharmacy, there's a very strong denial of death going on. So I think to invert that and face the fact that def, death is definitely going on all the time, and you can't avoid it, I think he's, he's making a powerful point. And one of our great hopes for immortality is modern medicine. Modern medicine, but here's the thing. And this is Hearst's point. Modern medicine can't overcome death. It can't do it. We haven't even gotten to our, to our own mortality. The fact that we, we, will, we ourselves will die. That there's an end to our lives. John Calvin, uh, fi, you know, 500 years ago, let, just under 500 years ago, said this regarding death. He says, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. 
If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. But the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. The thought of the fact that we won't ever die. Operationally, functionally, that's how we tend to think. In large part, we are in denial over our own mortality, and we want to avoid top talking about it. And we think that we can escape it. You know, Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Right? And that's, that's kind of the, the way we think about it. You know, if we could just we kind of become a bundle of contradictions. Well, it happens, of course, but it, may, it probably won't happen to me, is what we think. Jonathan Edwards, the New England Puritan pastor and theologian, would routinely take his children to the graveside to ponder the fleeting nature of life. Now, that sounds a bit uh, morbid to, to us, maybe, but I think it's realistic. What is the one thing that we are all guaranteed when we enter this world? That we will die. And so it behooves us to consider this topic. I think it will bring also, as we consider it, stability to our lives. It has a stabilizing effect. And so our passage this morning brings us to the graveside of Abraham. And I want us to do what Jonathan Edwards would do with his children And that is to sit by the graveside of Abraham and ponder this topic of death. And we're going to consider four things this morning, four points. The first is that death is not natural. Death is not natural. Death is not the end. Death conquers death. That's the third thing. So death is not natural. Death is not the end. Death conquers death. And then the final consideration is the hope of the resurrection. So those are the four points this morning. So first, death is not natural. Look at verse 8. Abraham breathed his last breath. Now, why, why did Abraham die? Why, why does, why does any, any one of us die? There's a medical explanation, and it's generally that our cells, which are constantly reproducing, their, their reproduction slows and slows until finally our cells just sort of expire. But but why why does that happen? Why do our cells go from from renewing, 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 renewing to eventually expiring? Why does that happen? Well, one of the ways we try to deal with the, the question of death is to say, well, death is simply a natural part of life. It's what everyone undergoes. It's natural to die. The, the wise uh, Yoda said this, Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those who transform into the force. Mourn them do not. Miss them do not. Attachment leads to jealousy. The shadow of greed, that is. Death is that's what Yoda say. Death is natural. It's a natural part of life. Now, Yoda's a bit of a stoic. Uh, philosopher in his outlook. Um, and Yoda's wrong on this point. I mean, think, think about what he's saying. Death is a natural part of life. Therefore, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Don't attach yourself. Detach yourself from people so that you don't miss them, so that you don't mourn them. That's, that's a recipe. That's, 
dealing with that death in that sort of way hardens the heart. There's no capacity for, for compassion if that's, if, if that's followed, if that advice is followed. The Bible has a very different view than the wisdom of, of Yoda. The Bible says death is not natural. In fact, it's an enemy invader. That's what death is. It's not right. And as a result, it is good to mourn and miss those who have passed away. Remember what Christ did at the, at the death of Lazarus? Shortest verse in all of Scripture? Jesus wept. God wept over death. Human, our death is not a natural part of life. It's an enemy invader. And it's a result of our, of our own rebellion from God. God Himself is life. And we opted out of life with God, which is life. And we ran and we alienated ourselves from God. We alienated ourselves from life. So our lives are lived in such a way that eventually we die. It's death, human death is God's judgment working itself out in our rebellion against God. And it's sweeping in its scope. There's nobody that's, un, that's not touched by it. It's, it's simply what inevitably happens when we're cut off from our life source, which is God. So, death is not natural. Now, the second point is that death is not the end. It's not the end for us. Look at verse 8, eight again. Abraham breathed his last. He died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And then it says this. And was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. What does that mean? That he was gathered to his people. Because here's the thing. He wasn't buried in the lands of his people. He was buried in the cave of Machpelah, verse 9 tells us, where only one person was buried so far, Sarah, his wife. But it doesn't say he was gathered to his person, his wife, Sarah. It says he was gathered to his people who were buried back in Ur. What does it mean? This text here is pointing to the fact that death is not the cessation of life. That when we die, it's not the end. That somehow we persist beyond. That there's an afterlife. There's a continuance of life beyond physical death. It doesn't cease. And the Bible, of course, you may think, well, of course the Bible talks about this. Well, it does. Some people have said that the Old Testament's very vague on the idea of an afterlife. In fact, you may remember the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, because, and, and they only adhered to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis here. And remember, actually remember them coming to Jesus and saying, they're trying to get Jesus all bound up in a contradiction. They say, Jesus, in the resurrection, who, um, and this person gets married to all these spouses, they try to trip him up over the question of marriage in the resurrected order, and Jesus handles that just fine. And then he says this, drawing on the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus, he says, God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, Jesus said, not the God of the dead. Do you see his point? Moses, God didn't appear to Moses and said, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when they were around. No, 500 years later, God says to Moses, I am 
and they're still around. They're with me. I am their God, and they are my people. In other words, they're still around. Some, they're, 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 their souls have persisted into what the Scriptures speak of as, as the intermediary state, that after we physically die, our soul in some way persists. Remember Jesus on the cross telling the thief, promising to him that today you'll be with me in paradise? Now, it's true, though, that the energy and the momentum of Scripture is not to that intermediary state, but it's moving towards the resurrection when all of creation will be resurrected, just as Christ was resurrected, when our soul and body will be united again into a resurrected life. That's still to come for all of us, for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for you, me, and all that have passed. But here's the point. Death is not the end. It's not the end of life. The scriptures are very, very clear on that. So, moving forward, number three, the death of death. Is there any hope that this problem of death, this enemy invader that is death, is there any hope that it can be crushed? And the answer is yes. In fact, Abraham carried with him a hope, a rudimentary hope, that the resurrection, that there is a possibility of a resurrection. Remember, remember when Abraham is called by God to go sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain of the Lord? And remember what he tells his servants? He goes up to the mountain. He's fully intending to sacrifice Isaac. But before he goes up, do you remember what he tells his servants? Stay here. Me and the boy are going to worship. I and the boy and we'll return to you. What does he mean? Did he not intend to sacrifice his son Isaac? I believe he did. The author of Hebrews elaborates on this and says what Abraham is implying there, what he's suggesting is that he considered, this is Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's what Abraham's hope was in when he said, we're going to come back, that God would somehow raise Isaac from the dead. Now, if you remember, Isaac did, or God did kind of bring Isaac back from the dead, maybe not literally, but provided the ram caught in the thicket. And the ram was sacrificed instead of his son Isaac. And do you remember what Abraham named the, the, the name of that place? The Lord did provide, because the Lord just provided the ram caught in the thicket. So the Lord provided, past tense. That would make sense, but that's not what Abraham called it. He said the Lord will provide. What does that mean? Abraham was looking forward to a future provision of the Lord. What was he looking forward to? Was he looking forward 500 years, 400, 500 years when, when, when the Lord would, would, would uh, bring, the destroyer would come and would, Kill the firstborn in Egypt across the board, except for those who had the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts, that the, that the destroyer would pass over those houses? Is that what Abraham was looking forward to? Maybe in part. I think ultimately what Abraham is looking forward to when he says the Lord will provide is he's looking forward to the arrival of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Do you remember John the Baptist when he first sees Jesus? What does he say to him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Now, we're in this season of Advent. And you may think, man, this is kind of a gloomy topic for December. I like to think about sugar plum fairies, and I like to sing It's a Marshmallow World in the Winter and watch Christmas, uh, Hallmark Christmas classics all the day long during December. I don't want to talk about death. It's so gloomy, so depressing. I actually think this is a very fitting topic for the season of Advent. I mean, think about when we celebrate the arrival of Christ. What, what, what's happening right now all around us? Death. The trees are bare. The grass is brown and dormant, lifeless. Days are shrinking. Cold. Death hovers. And it's fitting that we remember the arrival of Christ because that's the kind of world that Christ came into. It was a world gripped in death. Christ came like an alien invader into, this, into his creation. Life itself broke into a world gripped by death. Right? That's what we just saying. Remember, Christ is the life of the world. I mean, that is literally the case. Christ said, I am life. That was his claim. It's a huge claim. I'm life. The life of the world came into a world gripped by death. Listen to one of my favorite modern Christmas uh, songs is, is by a group. Uh, it's about 10 years old. It's called Joy, Joy. It's by a group called Bifrost Arts. And Isaac Wardell, who wrote the lyrics, says this in the song. Down from the throne of heaven he fell. Light, light became Emmanuel. Covered in our flesh, swaddled in our dress. Onto the ground his blood he spilled. Peace, peace, cried Emmanuel. Sinners dark and vile, God to reconcile. Spilling love and joy and light and peace, peace, peace. That little baby in a manger came with a very specific purpose. To die, to spill his blood so that he might also spill his life, his peace, Joy upon the world. And our faith, like life, life itself pursued death so that we who are in death might come to life. That's, that's the gospel story. And our faith centers upon death. Isn't that strange? Upon the death of, 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 of its founder. Jesus, every other religion centers upon the, the, the life of its founder, the life and teaching of, of its founder. But not Christianity. It centers upon the death, the death of Christ. Jesus called his death the very hour for which he came. And one of the things we sing quite often is this song, Christ is risen from the dead. And, and in that, you, we, there's the line that Christ trampled over death by death. See? Death, the death of Christ, conquers Death. This is what Paul says regarding this. This great enemy of death, this enemy invader. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see how desperate our situation is? 
that we're in. We are totally gripped in death. So gripped in death that we've grown to, we're, we're actually allergic to life. Because what happened when Christ came into the world? Life itself walked among us. What did, what did the world want to do to him? Put him to death. We wanted to slay life. That's how much our hearts long for, for, for death. That's, we recoiled. We, we, we killed him. We, at best, you know, his disciples abandoned him, run from him, hide, betray, deny. Christ was put to death on a tree, a dead tree, tree that had been harvested from its roots and was now serving as a cross. It was not only like literally a dead tree, but it was figuratively a tree of death. It was, a, it was an execution station, a place for killing people. Christ died upon that tree. But this is how universe shaking the death of Christ is. What was a literal tree of death and a figurative tree of death became a tree of life for those who believe in him. And a tree that produces Fruit. Fruit that will show up in, in just manifold ways when Christ returns. That's the power of the death of Christ. It conquered death. Now, I want us to finally conclude uh, by considering the hope of the resurrection. I mentioned earlier that Abraham hoped in part uh, for the resurrection, as the author of Hebrews says. But Abraham just had kind of a faint shadow of hope in the resurrection. We've seen the risen Lord. Um, the, the world has seen the risen Lord. Remember what Paul says back in that great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was raised from the dead and he, he showed up to more than 500 people at, at various points in the 50 days after his resurrection. And Paul says, most of those people are still alive. In other words, Paul is saying, Paul is saying look, I know this is crazy that we're talking about a risen Lord here. But, but get this, there's 500 people walking planet Earth. If you want to con confer with them about this, they can testify that they saw the risen Lord with their real own eyeballs. That's what Paul says. And so we, we are on the other side of that resurrection, and we see with greater clarity what the future of the world holds. And that is that all of creation, you, me, the whole cosmos, will undergo a resurrection itself. That Christ is just the first fruits. Christ is like a, a template, a sneak peek of what the whole world will undergo as it's resurrected to new life. It's the future of the universe is resurrection. Now, so death is, is not natural. It's been overcome. Now, there's a big question, though, that historians have pondered. And that is, um, what is it that made Christianity go from being this tiny little offshoot of Judaism to becoming the religion of the West? That's a question that is kind of vexed historians and folks that kind of consider all this. There's a philosopher named Luc Ferry, who's a French, he's a French philosopher. He's not a Christian. He wrote a little summary of philosophy, and, and he, he wrestles with this question. How did Christianity uh, supplant Greek philosophy within the, the West? How did that happen? 
You know what his answer is? He's not, he's not even a Christian. He said, Christians had an answer for the biggest question that humans have, death. Christianity offered a compelling answer to the question that we all must face, and that is death. Luke, this, this philosopher says, Christianity had the resurrection, and it swept through the West and transformed the course of history. In fact, there's a lot of uh, scholars, I think of a guy named Tom Holland and Christian Smith, who have made the point that what the West values and cherishes, things like human rights and the importance of love and caring for weak, the weak, all of these things that the West prizes, they're all a direct, directly rooted to Christianity. In other words, the resurrect, re- resurrection changed the course of human history. It changed the course of Western civilization. And so the question I want to close with is, do you think it can change the course of your life? If the resurrection changed the course of Western civilization, might the doctrine of the resurrection have the power to change the course of your life? Paul says it does. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can, you can look at it if you like. I've been drawing heavily from that chapter. Verse 58, Paul says... As a result of the resurrection, therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? Reckoning with death and seeing how Christ crushed death through his death. And and, and the resurrection is the future for all of those in Christ. Seeing that, Paul says, makes us steadfast immovable. Now, wait, pause right there. Remember Yoda? Yoda said, death is a natural part of life. Therefore, detach yourself from the world so that you don't miss or mourn those who, who, who are, have passed. That's what Yoda says. So in other words, Yoda says, seeing death as a natural part of life can make us steadfast and immovable. But that's not enough, is it? We need to be abounding in the work of the Lord, abounding in works of love, and only the resurrection can do that. We rightfully hate death. We see it as not natural. It's an invader, and we mourn and miss those who have passed on before us. That is good and right and proper. Our Lord did it before he raised Lazarus back from the dead. It's perfectly fitting. But knowing the hope of the resurrection, we mourn as those with hope. It makes us steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the works of the Lord. And so we've sat by the graveside of Abraham, and we've considered this grand topic of death, and how how the death of Christ conquers it. The death is not the end. It's not natural. The death of Christ becomes the the means of life and resurrection. I want to close with a quote from John Stott, In his book, The Cross of Christ, he says, I could never myself believe in God were it not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, 
the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, and he suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in light of, of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Christ and his arrival, his coming, that he came with a very specific purpose, and that was to die. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he's building a newly restored world order around his supremacy. We give you thanks for that hope. We confess just being feeble to even respond to that properly. But we remember that as Paul prayed, we have resurrection power in us. That you've planted that in our hearts. You've, in fact, you've already used it. We've been brought from spiritual death to new life in Christ. The old is past, new has come. We pray that you would continue to flex that resurrection power in our lives so that we might be more, um, more hopeful, more compassionate, more ready to cry at loss of life, but also more hopeful of the resurrection. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.